0: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blinn, producer. Clark Hilton, today's engineer. Today we'll hear a conversation with Jim and Alan Fadling. What does your soul love? Eight questions that reveal God's work in you. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. We'll try to cover some of the big headlines of the day as well. Well, Newsom wins in a blowout as predicted. He won by 87% in San Francisco, 71% in L.A., 59% in San Diego. Well, anti-Trump strategy offered... uh, Republicans a warning about the midterm and next presidential election and exit polls show support for COVID restrictions that were in place, put in place by Newsom. Well, Jenner says you get the government you deserve. He, of course, was one of the candidates running against Newsom in this recall election. Well, California Governor Gavin Newsom on Tuesday became only the second governor in American history to survive a recall in an election that the president, President Biden, said, Uh, And other uh, visiting National Democrats helped pull out uh, for him in a very big way. Newsom, the 40th governor of the nation's most populous state, dodged the same fate as fellow California Democrat Gray Davis who was recalled and removed in 2003. About 47 minutes after the polls closed at 8 p.m. in California, the Associated Press projected the race for Newsom, with early returns showing that 67% voted no to recalling the governor and 33% voted yes, with just under 60% of all precincts reporting. While well, exit polls showed voters who opposed recall were most concerned about COVID-19. We said yes to science. We said yes to vaccines. One exhausted looking and somewhat emotional, Newsom said in a relatively brief appearance at the Democratic headquarters in Sacramento just before 9 p.m. local time. We said yes to ending this pandemic, the governor said. We said yes to people's right to vote without fear of fake fraud or voter suppression. We said yes to diversity. We said yes to inclusion. End quote. By a wide margin, conservative talk radio host and columnist Larry Elder garnered the most votes among 46 candidates to replace Newsom with 61% of the vote in shortly after 9 p.m. local time. Elder was the choice of 43.6% to replace Newsom. But of course, Newsom would have to have garnered less than 50% of the vote in favor of keeping him there. Trailing Elder were Democrat and YouTube star Kevin a Paffrath with 10.7%, former San Diego Mayor Kevin Falconer at 9.5%, according to the New York Times. Newsom raised more than $70 million to fight the recall, mostly in July and August, the Times reported, while Elder had spent about $600,000 uh, after, uh, uh, after Elder, uh, driven largely by name recognition, emerged. Uh, As the leading GOP candidate, Democrats were able to make it a de facto Newsom versus Elder race. I think more accurately, uh, Elder, I should say Newsom versus Trump race. Uh, In fact, the president announced when he spoke yesterday that a vote for uh, Larry Elder was a vote for Donald Trump. And if uh, Larry Elder were to win, Donald Trump would be the governor of California. It's kind of that new math. Well, deep blue California stayed true to its color as the governor Easily staved off a recall with a vote supposing the rem- of removing him coming in again, well over 60 percent. Well, California's governor recall efforts are not the only recall campaign in the West that's not working. Three in Oregon joined that list. State Senator Lynn Findley, a Republican from Vail, was one of two Senate Republicans targeted for recall because of certain gun rights advocates wanted senators to boycott the session to stop a gun control bill instead of just voting no. OPB reported with a deadline to collect 8,289 valid signatures fast approaching Monday afternoon. The chief petitioner behind the recall told OPB the effort to recall Findlay had failed. A recall of Senate Republican leader Fred Girard. A Republican from Lions was previously pitched as it did not gain traction this summer either. On a different level, the recall effort at Portland Mayor Tom Wheeler also appears to be struggling. The Willamette Week reports the campaign had 90 days to collect just under 48,000 valid signatures. The recall efforts clock runs out on the 6th of October. Right now, says campaign manager Audrey Keynes, just under 13,000 signatures have been collected. That's not even one-fifth of the necessary signatures to get the recall on the ballot this fall, assuming all the signatures are valid, which is generally not the case. The first signs the recall campaign might fail... Uh, Fail and fall short came on the 11th of August when the recall campaign announced that it collected just under six thousand signatures in the first month of its effort. Now, I think it's probably fair to say that given the pandemic, you don't have access to the same crowds you might otherwise have. But it appears that there will not be a recall, although October 6th is the deadline. Anything could happen between now and then. But it appears there will not be a recall effort of Portland's mayor. Well, two weeks after Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler garnered nationwide attention with his plan to boycott Texas following the state's curtailing of abortion access, the council is ready to vote on it. But the proposal, which the council will consider on Wednesday, sometime today, has shifted shape considerably since the city nabbed national headlines. The city has ditched the two meatiest parts of that proposal, a boycott on city business with Texas and a ban on employee travel to the Lone Star State. Instead, city officials are considering... Uh, setting aside $200,000 that would go to organizations that deliver programs and services related to reproductive health care, your tax dollars at work. Well, the ordinance doesn't uh, specify where these organizations should be located or do they uh, consider whether or not taxpayers are interested in their tax dollars going for that purpose. Um, Days after Texas passed legislation, the heartbeat bill that banned abortion after six weeks of pregnancy, the council announced the city would be withdrawing its business over what they called an attack on the reproductive rights, freedom and autonomy of people across the country. City spokesman Heather Hafer, she said the city had purchased just under $35 million in goods and services from Texas over the past five years. But the press release appeared to have come long before the policy making. City officials scrambled the last two weeks to nail down how such a boycott would work in practice. While uh, pro-abortion advocates raised concerns that the boycott was also was not the right tact, as Willamette Week reported. Well, the editorial board of the Oregon Life, the online version of the Oregonian, lambasted the city for pointless preening, focusing uh, resources on a problem 2,000 miles away instead of the multitude of crises The city faces right here at home. Well, the mayor's office went back to the drawing board late Tuesday afternoon. The city released the proposal, which would set aside, as I mentioned, $200,000 in general fund money, but no boycott. Well, in today's very competitive real estate market, buyers love letters, as they're called, are a common practice to try to get a little more attention and sympathy from a seller. You may not have the best offer, but your story might be appealing. Well, buyers can tell sellers what they really love about the home and how they plan to use it. Sellers, in turn, often appreciate this gesture because it helps them ensure that they're selling to someone who will live inside their home rather than an investor looking to buy and flip the property. A win-win for communication and free speech. Well, maybe not. Over the summer, Oregon became the first state in the nation to ban the transmission of these love letters, enacting House Bill 2550. Sellers agents who pass such letters on uh, to sellers could face fines or even criminal misdemeanor prosecution. What great evil was Oregon seeking to eradicate with such a law? Oregon worries that these letters can be a tool of discrimination by including identifying information concerning race, sex, or familial status. That hasn't been an issue, but they suspect it could be someday, maybe might. Well, the ban on love letters violates the first amendment. Oregon looks to bar communication between individuals because the content might prompt someone to discriminate. There haven't been any charges thus far to that end. Such a speech restriction cannot be justified unless it is absolutely necessary. We'll see what happens if there is a challenge. You're listening to the Georgine Rice
0: show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. A reminder coming up in the second hour of today's program, we'll hear from Jem and Alan Fadling, their book, What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. Well, Arizona Attorney General Mark Branovich is suing President Joe Biden and other administration officials over the new COVID-19 vaccine mandate. Bronovich announced the lawsuit yesterday, explaining during a press call that uh, he thinks the president lacks the constitutional authority to require the vaccination of millions of Americans. This lawsuit is about federalism, constitutional principles and the fact that the Biden administration has no authority under the Constitution to mandate covid-19 vaccines, period. Uh, Branovich, a Republican, said, well, the attorney general says he plans to prove that the Biden administration's vaccine and testing policy undermines federalism as it's it infringes on the rights and liberties of states and individual Americans. Well, the Arizona attorney general argued that the administration doesn't have the authority to issue any executive order for anyone to promulgate any rules related to public health, safety and welfare, because those are issues that are supposed to be left to the states. Arizona will not tolerate this assault on our sovereignty, he wrote on Twitter with a video announcing the lawsuit. Well, speaking from the White House on the 9th of September, the president announced that he's directing the Department of Labor to write a rule requiring organizations with 100 or more employees to ensure all their workers are vaccinated or tested weekly for COVID-19. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration would be responsible for the implementation and enforcement of the rule, which is yet to be released. There are some exceptions, however, where... Uh, Regular testing will not be tolerated. You must have the vaccine or lose your job. The president also signed two executive orders mandating all federal workers and government contractors be vaccinated. In addition to proving the vaccine mandate is unconstitutional, Branovich's legal action also seeks to show that the order violates the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. The order favors migrants that have crossed into the country illegally over legal U.S. citizens, he said. As thousands, even millions, have crossed the border, the federal government is allowing them the choice, even though they are not citizens, whether to get the vaccine or not and not providing that same courtesy to U.S. Citizens, This is the first of what is very likely to be many others. Well, a new analysis by the Congressional Research Service, Congress's nonpartisan research arm, suggests that the president's uh, intention to require all workers at companies with at least 100 employees to get vaccinated against COVID-19 might not pass legal muster. Again, the president on the 9th said that he would use the Occupational Safety and Health Administration's jurisdiction over workforce safety to require some 80 million workers to get vaccinated against coronavirus. To get around the fact that enacting an OSHA rule typically takes four to seven years, it will use emergency authority known as emergency temporary standards. OSHA may promulgate and ETS, without supplying any notice or opportunity for public comment or public hearings... An ETS is immediately effective upon publication in the Federal Register. That's an emergency order. Upon promulgation of an ETS, OSHA is required to begin the full rulemaking process for a permanent standard with the ETS serving as the proposed standard for this rulemaking. Using emergency authority requires that employees are exposed to grave danger and that such emergency standard is necessary to protect employees from such danger. Well, the term grave danger used in the first mandatory determination for an ETS is not defined in statute or regulation. The legislative history demonstrates the intent of Congress that the ETS process not be utilized to circumvent the regular standard setting process. But the history is unclear as to how Congress intended the term grave danger to be defined. OSHA has resorted to emergency rules only sparingly, but in the few cases it's used them, the agency moves uh, haven't stood up well against court scrutiny. And it's being predicted by the Congressional Research Service it won't uh, pass muster this time around either. Meanwhile, the NBA and NBPA continue to negotiate aspects of COVID related protocols and procedures for the upcoming. Uh, 2021-22 campaign, but the NBPA has uh, refused to budge on its demands that players not be required to take the vaccine according to sources, and any proposal that mandates vaccination remains a non-starter. Roughly 85 percent of players are vaccinated, a league spokesman recently said, and in a preliminary memo obtained by ESPN in early September, the league outlined a set of strict protocols for unvaccinated players. Well, these protocols include having lockers far from vaccinated teammates and having to eat, fly and ride buses in different sections. Those protocols are not final and are still subject to talks with the uh NBPA. Well, the NBA informed teams in early September that new laws in both New York and San Francisco regarding vaccine requirements will be enforced for members of the New York Knicks, Brooklyn Nets, and Golden State Warriors, including for their teams' players, unless there is an approval uh, approved medical or religious exemption according to a memo from ESPN. Well, in late August, the NBA informed the teams that Personnel under team control who worked within 15 feet of players or officials during games would be required to be fully vaccinated by the 1st of October. That again, according to the memo obtained by ESPN. Within the last week, the president announced a sweeping set of vaccine mandates that could impact as many as 100 million and could include NBA players. Well, a nurse administering a um, Uh, A booster shot of Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine is a pretty common image. Pfizer told the FDA on Wednesday that data from its clinic trials suggests a third shot of its coronavirus vaccine may be necessary six months after the second dose because of waning efficacy. Now, as we discussed yesterday, the FDA's advisory committee on Friday is expected to review Pfizer's clinical trials and other supporting and conflicting data on coronavirus booster shots and make recommendations on whether more Americans 16 years and older should receive an extra dose. Two of its members have already uh, said that they will resign, one later this month, the other in October. Pfizer included the clinical trial data in its presentation that it will deliver to the advisory committee. The Pfizer data from its trials showed that the efficacy of its uh, coronavirus vaccine, which it developed Uh, with BioNTech degrades by around 6% every two months after the second dose, increasing the likelihood of breakthrough cases. Well, the company said data from an analysis of breakthrough cases also suggests that they were more common among people who had received their second dose earlier than others. In fact, some have suggested If there had been more time between the first and second doses, this would not be an issue. The drop in effectiveness was due to waning of vaccine immune responses and not the Delta variant of the virus escaping the protection offered by the vaccine, according to Pfizer. Well, the other side, international public health experts, including two FDA vaccine leaders who are leaving the agency this year, wrote a new paper published in The Lancet this week that booster doses are not necessary for the general public right now. They said current evidence suggests that vaccines are still extremely effective in preventing severe illness and death from COVID-19 and that the doses used for booster shots would save more lives by inoculating populations that are currently unvaccinated. The expert did support booster shots for immunocompromised people, so there is a a population they suggest it might be helpful too. The big picture, the Biden administration hopes to uh, start offering booster shots to everyone six months after their second dose. The World Health Organization, however, is currently strongly opposed to developed nations offering extra doses to their general population, while developing countries struggle to procure enough doses for their citizens and the World Health Organization director. Uh, called on developed countries last week to forego the booster shots through at the end of the year. Well, the Biden administration has argued that additional shots are needed to curb the spread of the virus in the U.S. and that developed countries can both administer boosters and uh, deliver doses to developing countries. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we return, we'll talk about children who may get better immunity from catching COVID naturally. We'll tell you more about what a microbiologist from the University of East Anglia is claiming. And babies could be given Pfizer COVID vaccines in the U.S. this winter. That and more when we return. You're listening
0: to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, Jim and Alan Fadling. What does your soul love? That's coming up in the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, children can get better immunity from catching COVID naturally instead of getting one dose of a vaccine. Well, that's according to Professor David Livermore, a microbiologist at the University of East Anglia claiming it uh, it was pretty pointless to inoculate youngsters who face such a vanishingly small risk of falling seriously ill with COVID. He told uh, Mail Online that they would probably develop more protection from catching the virus in a similar way as to how they build up immunity against other seasonal illnesses. Now, that may be true for some children, but certainly not all who are in high-risk categories. COVID vaccines work by teaching the immune system, he says, to recognize the virus and give it the power to fight it off in the future. But some studies have suggested, Vaccine-triggered immunity starts to wane within six months, with some data suggesting people who um, have recovered from the virus may be protected for at least a year. One Israeli study claimed people who got the virus, um, or the vaccine rather, are 13 times more likely to catch COVID than those who have recovered from a previous infection. Preliminary trials of the Pfizer vaccine in young children suggest it is safe, but there are ethical concerns as well as fears about the small risk of side complications. And there are questions about the dose. Are two shots too many? Well, for teenage children and young adults, there is about a less than one in 10,000 risk of heart inflammation known as myocarditis. But if you are that one within the 10,000, it's a serious concern. And while the vast majority of people who uh, get uh, myocarditis, they're treated within days, if they're treated it within days, it's unclear what the long-term effects are. Well, the U.S. has been vaccinating children age 12 and above since the start of the summer, and elementary-aged pupils are expected to be given the jabs in the fall. Britain only this week signed off on those plans with officials claiming the benefits uh, were only marginal because COVID poses such a low risk to children. British children under 16 are only being offered one dose of Pfizer vaccine until more data has been gathered on the safety of giving the two doses. That same debate is taking place here. There's also ethical uh, questions about vaccinating youngsters, mostly to protect older adults. Latest official U.S. data shows that in the week ending August the 14th, the COVID hospitalization rates among children aged four and younger was about 2.2 per 100,000. That was more than six times lower than the 15.8 percent or rather per 100,000 rate among the highly vaccinated over 65. Well, in states reporting pediatric cases, children have accounted for fewer than 0.25 percent of all COVID deaths. Seven states have reported no uh, child deaths, while other states reported that children made up as low as 0.03% of all fatalities, according to analysis by National Public Radio. Well, American children between the ages of 5 and 11 could be eligible for COVID vaccine by the end of October, according to... The former head of the FDA, Scott Gottlieb, who headed the FDA under former President Trump and now sits on the board of directors at Pfizer, says that the emergency use approval process for vaccinating young children could be done in a matter of weeks. Gottlieb says the pharmaceutical giant is expected to file the paperwork with the federal government requesting authorization to vaccinate kids as early as September. But again, still quite controversial, primarily among parents. Well, babies could be given Pfizer's COVID vaccine in the U.S. this winter. The company is uh, planning to seek approval for jabbing six-month-olds in November. Uh, Pfizer's COVID vaccine could be rolled out to, to babies as young as six months under plans being drawn up by the company, by the giant. In a move likely to cause international controversy, the company intends to apply for authorization to immunize American infants within the next two months. The timeline will depend on the findings of in-house trials looking into whether the vaccines are safe and effective in youngsters aged six months to five years and at what dose. The firm's plan is to um, go file by November. The Financial Times reports we would expect to have data for children between the ages of six months and five years old uh, that we would file with the FDA uh, at a Morgan Stanley global Healthcare conference. The FDA's um, D'Amelio says, I'll call it in weeks shortly thereafter, the filing of the data for the five uh, to 11 year olds. Pfizer has already planned to seek approval for the food from the Food and Drug Administration for the jabs to be given to children five to 11. But the latest comments confirm the firm's intention to work its way down much younger. Uh, age groups. They're going to be given a lower dose than adults. What that dose is, not yet clear. Pfizer's jab, made alongside German partner BioNTech, is already approved for those over 12 in the U.S. and in Britain. While well, Olympic champion heroes uh, y- uh, to younger uh, women and girls across the nation for their athletic achievements on Wednesday served as champions for survivors of sexual abuse as they demanded accountability. For those who enabled Larry Nasser, who abused them and dozens of others for years, Simone Bice, uh, Michaela uh, Maroney, um, Allie Raisman, alongside fellow gymnast Maggie Nichols and others, recounted their experience before the Senate Judiciary Committee in the wake of a Justice Department inspector general's report that revealed how the FBI failed to act on their complaints. As a result, they said Nasser, who once served as a doctor for USA Gymnastics, was able to continue his pattern of abuse against young women and girls. I don't want another young gymnast, Olympic athlete, or any individual to experience the horror that I and hundreds of others have endured before, during, and continuing to this day in the wake of the Larry Nasser abuse. Biles said, fighting back tears as she delivered her opening statement, How much is a little girl worth? Biles asked. Referencing the title of a book written by fellow survivor uh, and gymnast, she asked government officials to keep that question in mind as they take action. No one at FBI, USAG or the USOPC did what was necessary to protect us. Biles went on to say, referring to the USA Gymnastics and the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committees. Uh, we have been failed and we deserve answers. When reviewing the report, Biles continued, it's truly It truly feels that the FBI turned a blind eye to us and went out of its way to protect USAG and USOPC. A message needs to be sent. If you allow a predator to harm children, the consequences will be swift and severe. Enough is enough. The hearing uh, continued for several hours earlier in the day with promises once again that there would be a response. A ranking member, Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican out of Iowa, said he is pressing the Justice Department to prosecute the FBI employees who failed to take proper action against Nasser following the report against him. Later in the hearing, when Representative Cory Booker, a Democrat from New Jersey, asked if any of the women had a message for the country, Raisman said she wanted to let people know how difficult it is for survivors to live with their trauma. Despite having competed in two Olympic Games, Raisman said there have been times when she didn't have the energy to stand in the shower or go for a short walk. Being here today is taking everything I have, she says. My main concern is I hope I have the energy even just to walk out of here. We'll we'll see what happens. Um, Members of the Senate were falling all over themselves uh, with apologies. Uh, But most of the uh, girls in the press conference that took place and young women, I should say, took place afterward said, we've heard lots of words, we've had lots of assurances, we're looking for action. In other news, former President Trump doubts the report of Milley calling the Chinese general, but says, if true, it's treason. The former president expressed skepticism regarding the report that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff went behind his back to call Chinese officials, but said such an action was a treasonous act, if true. Washington Post associate editor Bob Woodward and national political reporter Robert Costa, they alleged in their upcoming book, seeking as much attention as they can get, the book is Peril, that Milley made two secret phone calls to General Li uh, Zhaocheng Cheng of the People's Liberation Army, his Chinese counterpart. Milley uh, reportedly made the calls before the 2020 presidential election in a statement released shortly after the interview. The former president called on Millie to step aside, floating a theory that Mary, Millie rather came up with the story himself and leaked it to the Woodward and Costa book whom he described as writers of fiction, not fact. Well, Milley has denied certain spin on the story that is uh, allegedly in the book. But until um, the book is released next week, we can read what is actually said there. And Millie testifies before the Senate, which was scheduled before this disclosure. We'll not know whether or not there were acts of treason or just misrepresentation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening
0: to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder coming up in the second hour of today's program, an interview with Jim and Alan Fadling. What does your soul love? Again, coming up in the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman says General Milley must resign if his secret calls with China occurred. And that's a big if at this point. Mark Milley's alleged China call violated the law, the retired colonel says, pointing out that he has no statutory authority. Marco Rubio calls on Biden to fire Milley after a soon-to-be-released book claims the general sought to undermine then-President Trump. He offered a, an example of what if he suggested, Milley, uh, that the current president is senile and therefore steps outside of his boundaries. Tucker Carlson says Mark Milley committed treason and others were implicated. Sean Hannity also says Milley should be tried for treason if the bombshell report proves to be true. And again, big if. If the bombshell report proves to be true, California Governor Newsom survived his recall election. The governor will keep his job steering the nation's most populous state. The Associated Press projected that a majority of Californians voted against removing him from office in Tuesday's recall election, the embattled first term Democratic governor. The Newsom recall defense received a business donor boost, and Silicon Valley was split on the California recall election. Mike Piazza's video pitch for Larry Elder failed to sway California voters to oust Newsom in the recall election. Many suggest Elder peaked too soon. Well, an update in the Alex Murdaugh shooting. South Carolina police say the alleged attack on the lawyer was a botched hit in a life insurance plot initiated by Mr. Murdaugh himself. Well, South Carolina police have arrested a man who allegedly conspired with the victim, so to speak, a high profile attorney whose wife and son were murdered in a double shooting in June to shoot and kill him in a plot to garner millions in life insurance uh, payouts to his surviving son. Agents of the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division on Tuesday arrested a Colleton County man in connection with the shooting incident involving Alex Murdoch on the 4th of September in Hampton County. South Carolina Law Enforcement Division spokesman uh, Tommy Cosby said in a uh, statement, Curtis Edward Smith faces charges of assisted suicide, or at least attempted assault and battery, pointing and presenting a firearm, insurance fraud and conspiracy to commit insurance fraud in connection with the case. Investigators said they have a probable cause to believe Murdoch set up the plot himself, but survived the shooting attempt with a superficial wound to the head. Uh, Richard Alex Murdoch conspired with Curtis Edward Smith in the area of old, well, doesn't matter, for the the purpose of Mr. Smith assisting Mr. Murdoch to commit suicide, the affidavit alleges. Mr. Murdoch provided Mr. Smith with a firearm and directed Mr. Smith to shoot him in the head for the purpose of causing Mr. Murdoch's death and allowing for the payment of a stated death benefit. Well, if the plot succeeded, Murdoch's surviving son, Buster Murdoch, could have collected on his father's $10 million life insurance policy. In other developments, South Carolina police are investigating whether Alex Murdoch misappropriated funds from his former law firm. Well, North Korea fired two ballistic missiles toward Japan. Japan's Suga rips the test as absolutely outrageous. One wonders if North Korea feels emboldened given recent events on the Texas abortion law. Biden's Department of Justice is asking a judge to intervene. And a California couple died from covid-19 complications, leaving behind a newborn they had not yet named. And four other children, a billionaire supermarket owner says inflation is causing manufacturers to panic. And Instagram has acknowledged its app can harm teens self-esteem in response to a new report. Biden's soak the rich tax plan has been diluted by Democratic allies in Congress. That battle and the battle lines will heat up very soon. Well, General Milley promised the Chinese he'd warn them if the U.S. planned an attack. That's what the new book says that will be out next week. Lots of speculation leading up to it. And New York City court, they blocked vaccine mandates. Uh, New York City's major, rather, major municipal unions scored a legal win Tuesday night when a Manhattan Supreme Court judge temporarily blocked City Hall's vaccine mandate for Department of Education workers. Judge Lawrence Love issued the temporary restraining order in response to a lawsuit brought against the city by a slew of major municipal unions who oppose Major Bill de Blasio's directive. And by the way, the number one group that is... Um, uh, vaccine averse are PhDs, we are told. Uh, Biden's approval on handling of COVID is slipping fast. 49% disapprove, 48% approve of this Quinnipiac poll that um, had Biden with a 13-point approval gap on the same question a month ago. U.S. Army is warning troops to get vaccine or face discipline. Just 40% are vaccinated as of last August. Democrat state and Democrat city lead in poverty rates, California and Washington, D.C., At the top of the list, Blinken says the U.S. doesn't know who was uh, killed in the drone strike. From that story, facing scrutiny from a Senate panel on Tuesday, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken admitted that he doesn't know if the U.S. mistakenly targeted an aid worker in a drone strike in Kabul that reportedly killed 10 Afghan civilians. Senator Marsha Blackburn, what uh, is Anthony Blinken covering up? Well, we don't have um, Assets on the ground. So I'm not sure how you have that kind of specificity. Well, the city of Portland is backing down on its plan to boycott Texas. And instead, they're going to use your tax dollars uh, to provide pro-abortion groups. With resources in some freakish show of retribution, it will set aside taxpayer funds to cover abortion. So instead of punishing Texas, they will punish taxpayers here and unborn babies. Well, the Boy Scouts reached the largest sex abuse settlement in U.S. history, paying out nearly two billion dollars to sixty five thousand victims. A Watchdog group has filed a complaint over the AOC attending the high priced gala, the Met Gala. Clark and I didn't go this year. Accordingly, the complaint uh, reportedly says House rules require that the receipt of the gift must fall under one of two exceptions. Being a widely attended event or a charity event, the AAF said the gift meets neither exemption. The gala is an exclusive event and invitations are overseen by the for-profit Cond Nast Company. We'll see what comes of that. House Democrats broke Joe Biden's pledge not to raise taxes on individuals making less than $400,000. At least that's what's being proposed. The Congressional Research Service has raised questions about the OSHA vaccine mandates legality. And Arizona became the first state to challenge the constitutionality of the vaccine mandate. More on that in the days ahead. On this day in history, 1776, British forces occupy New York City during the American Revolution. 1959, Nikita Khrushchev becomes the first Soviet head of state to visit the United States as he arrives at Andrews Air Force Base outside Washington. 1963, four black girls are killed when a bomb goes off during Sunday services at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Three Ku Klux Klansmen eventually would be convicted for their roles in the blast. 1973, a federal grand jury in Washington indicts seven men in connection with the Watergate break-in. 1981, the Senate Judiciary Committee votes unanimously to approve the Supreme Court nomination of Sandra Day O'Connor. 2001, President George W. Bush orders U.S. troops to get ready for war and braced Americans for a long, difficult assault against terrorists to avenge September 11th, 2001 attack. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. And when we return, we'll talk more about Mark Milley and the political crosshairs, North Korea firing missiles and much more.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll hear from Jem and Alan Fadling, authors of What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. That's coming up for our next couple of segments. Also, we'll talk about Afghan Christians. They're facing a new phase in this crisis there. They apparently have lost contact with U.S. ministries, so we're not clear what the details are there. We'll tell you more about that later in the program as well. Well, there's something about the term deep state that sounds paranoid, even nutty. Well, as of just a few years ago, you mostly heard the phrase from relics on the far left and some on the far right. The kind of people who lecture you about the United Fruit Company and the toppling of the uh, well, we won't go into all of that. Well, the term then and now suggests that our democracy is fake, that elections and domestic politics are a sideshow no matter who you vote for? In the end, the same people still run everything. That's a pretty dark understanding of the American system. If you're a regular person who grew up here, it's the last thing that you want to believe about your country. Well, there's some speculation circulating right about now, having to do with the book that's not yet released. And in typical fashion, there are claims made in the book before it's released that got that has everyone talking about it. Well, what is the uh, the main issue? General Milley concluded with uh, with China, our chief military rival, to undercut the elected president of the United States. Now, he has since come out and said that is not what happened and uh, and intends, rather, to clarify the situation. We don't know what exactly took place, who was involved, and so on. But the story seems to be emerging that's quite different from what the book, at least the teasing of the book, suggests Uh, is going to be a major feature in it. Well, according to reporting this summer, in the days after last November's election, Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he held a meeting with senior military officials at the Pentagon. Milley wanted to inform them of what he described as a serious threat to national security, a threat so grave it imperiled the stability of the republic. Well, that threat, Milley said, was the sitting president of the United States. Donald Trump had dared to question the election results, and for this, Milley explained, the United States military might be required to use physical force against the president. We're the guys with the guns, Milley said. He apparently um, had been uh, preparing for the moment. Well, Milley had similar conversations with the director of the CIA, Gina Haspel, as well as with the head of the NSA, Paul Nakasone. He'd also spoken directly to Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, Trump's chief uh, political rivals. Well, now, according to a new book by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, Milley went even further than that. On the 30th of October of last year, Woodward and Costa report, Milley called his counterpart in China, the general called Li Zhao Cheng, and Milley uh, didn't. Uh, Didn't tell his boss, the president, about the call, either before he made or afterwards. Well, here's uh, Milley's message for the communist Chinese military, and this is uh, from the book. Uh, Mr. Milley is now saying that this is mischaracterized and misleading. We won't know what the book actually reports until next week. But everybody's talking about it, and some are calling for his immediate dismissal. General Lee, I want to assure you that the American government is stable and everything is going to be okay. We're not going to attack or conduct any kinetic operations against you. And then, reportedly, Milley said this, General Lee, you and I have known each other for five years. If we're going to attack, I'm going to call you ahead of time. It's not going to be a surprise. And the question is whether or not... Uh, Mr. Milley exceeded his authority. Now, uh, let that sink in for a moment. If we're going to attack, I'm going to call you ahead of time. It's not going to be a surprise. According to this account, our country's top defense officials secretly colluded with our chief military rival to undercut an elected president of the United States. Well, how do you describe this? Well, again, that phrase, deep state, some allege it's not strong enough. It's treason. It could be a crime, and apparently Mark Milley isn't the only person implicated in it. Others knew it was happening. Our intelligence agencies almost certainly heard Mark Milley's call. We're now told that there were some 14 people in the room at the time. And if they can read emails from a cable news show on Fox... Um, What are the chances that they're aware that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was speaking to a senior Chinese general and what they were saying? Around 100 percent. Yet the NSA did nothing. The CIA was clearly fully on board. We are on the way to a right wing coup. Gina Haspel told Milley. Well, this is what the book alleges happened. Now, as I mentioned, Milley's spokesperson is defending the calls They're not suggesting the call's. The two calls to China didn't take place, but the nature of them, the purpose of them and what was said is being disputed. So we can't draw a final conclusion until that's, well, ultimately cleared up. And... Um, The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is going to be testifying before a Senate panel next week. That was arranged before all of this came out. Well, a spokesman for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs is uh, defending allegations of the secret calls with the Chinese counterpart, saying the conversations were vital to reducing tensions and avoiding unintended consequences or conflict, maintaining that the calls were coordinated with high-level defense officials. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs regularly communicates with chiefs of defense across the world, including with China and Russia. Russia. These conversations remain vital to improving mutual understanding of U.S. national security interests, reducing tensions, providing clarity and avoiding unintended consequences or conflict. Again, quoting milley spokesman, Colonel Dave Butler in a statement made earlier today. Well, Butler said that uh, Milley's calls with the Chinese and others in October and January were in keeping with these uh, duties and responsibilities, conveying reassurance in order to maintain strategic stability. All calls from the chairman to his counterparts, including those reported, are staffed, Coordinated and communicated with the Department of Defense and the interagency. Also, in keeping with this responsibilities as senior military advisor to the president and secretary of defense, General Milley frequently conducts meetings with uniformed leaders across the services to ensure all leaders are aware of current issues. Butler uh, continued the meeting regarding nuclear weapons protocols was to remind uniformed leaders in the Pentagon of the long established and robust procedures in light of media reporting and this in the, in the uh, su- on the subject. Well, that reference is to a meeting of those military heads who were apparently told that nothing was to happen. They were not to obey any orders unless he himself was directly involved He made them repeat that they understood what he was saying and so on. Well, General Milley continues to act and advise within his authority in the lawful tradition of civilian control of the military and his oath to the Constitution. Well, meanwhile, former acting Secretary of Defense Christopher Miller, who led the Pentagon from the period after the 2020 election through the inauguration, said that he did not and would never, ever authorize the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, to have secret calls with his Chinese counterpart, describing the allegations as a disgraceful and unprecedented act of insubordination and calling on him to resign immediately. So you not only have the book making certain allegations, Milley um, saying that it's a mischaracter mischaracterization, but you have the uh, former acting Secretary of Defense at that time saying that he was not involved and did not authorize this secret communication. Well, in a statement, uh, Miller said that the United States Armed Forces from its inception has operated under the Inavoidable principle of civilian control of the military, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is the highest ranking military officer whose sole role is providing military specific advice to the president and by law is prohibited from exercising executive authority to command forces. The, the um, chain of command runs from the president to the secretary of defense, not through the chairman or the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So this controversy will continue. Some have already called for his resignation. I prefer to find out if we can ferret out the the facts as they um, uh, as they are proven to be true rather than speculation based on statements made in a book. So next week, hopefully, and following the testimony from the uh, secretary, uh, Millie, there will be some verifiable clarification. Well, coming up, we're going to hear from Jim and Alan Fadling, the book. What does your soul love? Eight questions that reveal God's work in you. That's coming up right here on The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guests ask several really important questions, among them What do you really want? What is your soul clinging to? And what's getting in your way? Well, in the pages of their book, What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. My guests, Jim and Alan Fadling, they outline eight key questions that offer deep insight into how we experience soul change. Now, the questions open the door to spiritual transformation, and they help us unpack where we're stuck, where we're in pain, where we're afraid, and much more. They also recall the path to joy and to the heart of God. Spiritual inventories and exercises in the book will guide you along with stories from both Jem and Alan's lives and their ministry together through Unhurried Living. It's a great book. We're going to talk about it here in just a moment. But first, let me introduce our guests. Jem Fadling is a founding partner of Unhurried Living, Inc., a nonprofit that resources and trains Christian leaders to rest deeper, live fuller, and lead better. A trained uh, spiritual director, retreat speaker, and podcaster, she enjoys serving as a guide with the intention of helping people encounter God in their very real lives. Alan Fadding is president and founder of Unhurried Living, Inc., a mission in Mission Viejo, California. He speaks and consults internationally with lots of organizations you would recognize. He's the award-winning author of An Unhurried Leader and An Unhurried Life, which was honored with the Christianity Today Award of Merit in Spirituality. He's also a contributing author to Eternal Living. Um, It reflections on Dallas Willard's teaching on faith and formation. He is a certified spiritual director, and the pair join us today to talk about their very important book. Once again, the title, What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. Jim and Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having us.
2: We're glad to be with you.
1: Let's begin with the title of the book, What Does Your Soul Love? Talk a bit about the nature of that question and what it reveals about us when we're trying to determine how, how does transformation happen and where do I even begin?
2: Well, sometimes that question is helpful, especially when uh, you might be in a dry place or maybe a dark place and sort of life has become a little more like a fog, let's say. There's a lot of metaphors in there. Mm-hmm. But um, it's when um, the, the methods and maybe the practices that you've been using feel like they've dried up a bit. You can sort of come at it differently through the, the filter of desire. What does your soul love to do? What do you love to do? Maybe answering that question can give you a new connection to God maybe take you in deeper than you have been before.
1: Is the goal ultimately um, to experience transformation that is being directed by God or just uh, pursuing what I like to do, which is kind of a cultural um, recreation, Um, you know, what what do I really like to do and I'm going to pursue that?
2: Right. Well, I like to think of the verse, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So we assume that God is the one initiating this process. He is the guide in transformation. So when we're asking the question, what do you want, it's not on that surface level Mm -hmm. of just preferences, right? There is a way of learning and discerning to hear, uh, to look inside and to see how God has made me and what might be the ways, those ways that I can engage with Him. Yeah, yeah.
1: One of the things that you write about in the book is the fact that, um, transformation is something that god initiates and facilitates we are participants in that process and it really grows out of an understanding of god's profound and deep life altering uh, love for us uh, help make the connection between his love for us and that transformation that we all long for but may not quite know how to how to <laughs> arrive at
3: yeah let me let me step in and just say i think it's really important to always remember that we don't seek change so that we'll be loved mm-hmm. but that we remember we're loved and therefore we can change in fact love is the engine for the change that we are often hungry for and and for that matter the, the change God invites us to God begins in love and from that place we then are able to enter into all the ways in which he would like for us to be able to be transformed he's doing that work, and love is the engine of that work.
1: You write that sometimes we opt for outward change as a substitute for the inward change to which God has uh, been inviting us. In doing so, we escape a change in soul by choosing a change of venue. But usually, the change needed is in our soul, not our setting. In the first chapter, you write about an invitation and changing from the center. You're not simply talking about superficial change, where it's a change of venue and therefore everything uh, will fall into place, but you're talking about the interior, as does Scripture.
3: Yeah, that's really well said. I, I think sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that our lives would be better if something out there would change, if that person would behave better, or if that situation in my life were different. And we think that change out there will improve my situation. But the the change that God invites us to is a change in who we are. The, the beautiful genius of Jesus is that he comes and he addresses the heart. This is his very first message. He Calls out the word repentance, which some people have turned into a word that sounds like bad news, but it's the best news there is. I can change, and the genius of Jesus is that that change always begins at the center of who I am. You know, he he uses lines in the Gospels like "Make the tree good," which is another way of saying deal with the root system, don't just deal with mm-hmm. the superficial outside.
1: You write about um, uh, in what th- does your soul love transformation as being different from perfectionism. This isn't a road to uh, becoming uh, perfect in my presentation and therefore more pleasing to God and transformed. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between the kind of transformation we see in Scripture and um, this desire that some of us have for perfectionism?
3: Yeah, I I call myself a recovering perfectionist, (laughs) actually. So you can recover, huh? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I say recovering anyway, you know, it's, <laughs> I'm on the way, but, there you but go. I think what's beautiful about the, the transforming process we're in is that it is indeed uh, a, a journey, that the language even in the New Testament is is a kind of being transformed, um,
2: uh, and and
3: therefore it's not something I arrive at in 10 minutes or two weeks or two years. It's this lifelong continuing process The problem with pursuing perfectionism is there's an ironic sense of God not being in the middle of it, because the minute I think I'm getting to some kind of perfection, I clearly am not using the sorts of standards God would be using to measure perfection. I've usually created some sort of artificial and likely a bit smaller version of perfection that I'm shooting for, whereas when God wants to talk about anything like perfection, wholeness, holiness. He's always measuring that by things like love or joy or peace. And those are huge mm-hmm. things that we can't possibly wrap our arms around.
1: Um, you're right, and I think this is so important. It can uh, it can help to remember that we are not the prime movers in this transformation. The language of transformation in the New Testament, for example, is in the passive voice. Rather than being initiators of the action, we are responders to the action of another. We are being transformed rather than transforming Ourselves now, that's a great relief, and it helps in our understanding of what God is doing in and through us.
2: Yes, it is a relief, isn't it? I mean, the yes. verse: "Be trans Be transformed by the renewing of your mind." So and then, this begs the question: Are we open and aware about this process that is going on? If it is happening to us, um, there is still a measure of cooperating. Yes, and so how can we grow to be people who Listen to God to and to respond to this great initiation of love and care and the transformational journey. And we think these questions. There's eight questions, and of course, there's more than that. Um, but these are eight, at least that. If you walk down the path of any one of them, you can find yourself on that transformational cooperative journey.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a few moments. Again, we're talking about the book, What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. And it may be only eight questions, but these are great questions to begin that journey that may lead to others that are also uh, useful to you. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments, so do stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Jem and Alan Fadling. They are co-authors of What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. It's a very practical book. It's not just asking a question uh, that's followed by good luck. I hope it works out for you, but they provide great resource to help you work through and think through um, how transformation occurs, and uh, it's just a a great resource for that purpose. Let me make sure I have both my Callers on the line here. Now, this began something of a, an odyssey, an answer to a question that, Jem, you were uh, seeking. You were asking yourself in a conversation uh, with uh, Alan, How have I remained on this path of my lifetime? What postures, what perspectives, what orientations kept me on the path? It was sort of an Ignatius of Loyola's looking back. Um, that uh, produced his uh, exercises. Can you talk a little bit about the beginning of this book and uh, in your uh, asking those questions, how you help others who may have similar questions in a desire to experience the transformation that God offers?
2: Well, yeah, what what initially happened was I was probably, I think, in my 40s. I had uh, been spending my life... Uh, like most of us wanting to grow, doing my best to cooperating with this process that we've been talking about, and I found myself up on a little bit of a of a vista point and i I liked who I had become up to that point, and I asked God it really is a prayer. How did I get here? What went on because I'm a curious person, and I like process and i and I wanted to learn from that so that I could keep growing, and I do have a heart to help others and so Really, I carried that prayer around with me for months, and I just kept saying, how did this happen? What was I doing? What were the common threads here? And it emerged as these, as these eight questions, and they weren't in the exact form that are in the book now, but the essence of each one of them was, were answers that came up over time. You know, the things that are common to all of us, fear and control and resistance. And how vulnerable can I be and how much truth am I engaging in? And I, I, as we've been talking to people, we're finding out that people are really resonating with these. So I don't think I stumbled on anything brand new. I think God just showed me that the things that that come up in all of our lives are actually paths to growth. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to offer these to others um, and say, if you walk down these um, with an open, open heart and a listening ear, you too can grow.
1: Now, if the goal is not perfectionism or self-actualization or a change of venue, what ultimately is the goal in going through the exercise of determining what does my soul love?
3: So I think, you know, the I, I, I would
1: almost call it the,
3: the Sunday school answer is, we would say it's to become more like Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the the model for which we are, into which we are being changed, is into the beautiful image of who Jesus is. He comes to earth. He takes on a body like ours. He takes on a life like ours. He depends on the Spirit of God. He lives a particular way, and then he invites us to follow him, and his Spirit enables us to do that. But what we find is, as we are following, there are things within us that get in the way. There are temptations. There are fears. There are other kinds of barriers and part of the the uh, presence of God in us at work is enabling us to uh, overcome some of those barriers and make our way through them and move increasingly in the direction of being the kind of person Jesus would be if he were living my life now.
1: Mm. Well, let's talk about these eight questions. I'm certain our listeners are intrigued by what kinds of questions might these be and how do I go about not only just asking the question and sitting for a minute quietly, but really pursuing the answers and what they mean toward this desire to transform in the way that God intends. Talk a little bit about maybe not all eight, but a couple of the, the questions that will help us on this journey. Well, why don't we start with one of the,
2: one of the hardest ones, maybe the pain. And the question there is, how are you suffering? And I think most of us would say that we don't make suffering. We don't like pain. And if something like that is happening, we want it to be over as soon as possible. But in my life, I had a very severe issue in my lower back with some nerve, nerve things. And it was the worst pain of my life. Mm. Now, while it was happening, I didn't enjoy it. I, didn't, I did, in fact, want it to get over fast. But the process of working through that pain, which took probably about six months for a healing that felt like me getting back to my normal, Um, within that, I met with God in a way that I think was unique to any other point in my life, and it was meeting Him in the pain. And I had been reading Mother Teresa, and she talked about engaging the suffering Christ. And how many times do you really get a chance to have empathy for Jesus, as he went to the cross and bore all our sins and took on all of that pain. Well, when you're having physical pain in your body, for example, that's not the only kind of pain, but in this case, that was my example. Um, There's a way to engage God, I think, in a deeper way than just cognitively. Mm -hmm. And so being open to these kinds of things, such as pain, to be ways in which we can meet God at deeper levels.
1: As I mentioned earlier at the end of uh, the chapters, you offer opportunities to to go deeper and to really reflect in a way that's going to have an impact. Uh, For example, there are a, a list of questions that are titled, Be Transformed, and the goal of that is to draw us in so that we don't just become stimulated intellectually, but we really press in and and go deep in a way that's going to afford the kind of transformation that God desires for us. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how the, the chapters are set up so that we do go deeper and it's not just an intellectual exercise?
3: Yeah, that's a good way to ask it. I think, you know, um, the reason we wrote the questions at the end and the way we wrote those mm-hmm. questions were an opportunity to step a little deeper in. The The thing about these questions is um, it may be tempting to think that our goal is to read the chapter, ask the question, spend a few minutes, get an answer, move on. But the reality that we've found is that these are the kinds of questions you find yourself revisiting often along the way. Like the question about fear, for example. I wish I could say, oh boy, I remember back in the Uh, 86, boy, I had a real event with fear, and boy, I dealt with it, and I've never been fearful again. But my experience is that fear keeps coming back, and it becomes a place of encounter with God. And so the questions at the end of the chapter and the questions that form the framing of each chapter are simply ways in which, places in which, to encounter God, to listen for God, to watch for God, and to grow in my uh, relationship with God.
1: One of your chapters is titled Resistance. What is getting in your way? And I could easily rattle off a whole list of things, you know, the other people and circumstances and my employment and my husband. And, you know, you could list off external things that are getting in the way. But you encourage us to, again, go deeper in considering what's getting in our way. And more often than not, we discover at least some element of our own. um, I'm not even quite sure how to describe it, but our getting in our own way
3: yeah I think um I used an image in in that chapter that I'll share, but the the thing that I learned is that the thing that gets in my way most tends to be me. yeah now, I don't like that fact, and i I'd like to sort of blame everybody else and and everything else that makes me feel a little bit better for a moment, but it doesn't help me much in the journey of change, so I used this picture. Um, the example of my trying to exercise regularly. And I'll be here in my house. We live in Southern California. Usually the weather's quite cooperative if I, I want to take a bike ride. But there's this little voice in the back of my head that says, oh, I don't feel like that. Oh, it'll be a big hassle to put on all my bicycle clothes. And, oh, I, you know, this, I'm just too tired. It's too late in the day. It's all these little I-don't-feel-like-it's that kind of ring from the back of my head that end up, if I keep listening to them, end up feeling like this brick wall. And then the brick wall feels like I can never get through it. But the thing about our resistance is this. It's really more like if I lean on that wall, I discover the wall is actually tissue paper, and it's painted to look like a brick wall. And just simply in the act of leaning through it, I realize I can move through it quite easily. And in fact, on the other side of that wall, is God there inviting me into some new experience of his presence. So resistance is usually about the, the no that happens inside of me that gets in the way of the yes that my heart really wants to say.
1: Well, I wish we had more time to go through the chapters, but I would encourage our listeners, I hope they're um, they're intrigued, I hope they'll pick up the book and walk through this chapter by chapter, because I think it will be, uh, as it was for me, very helpful in understanding a, a bit more about myself and how I so often get in the way when I'd much rather point the finger outward uh, to others or other things. Again, the book is titled, What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. Jim and Alan Fadling, Could I just ask you briefly to tell me a, a bit or tell our listeners a, l- a little bit about um, your organization that uh, is having an impact uh, um, for leaders as well?
3: Well, um, yes, yeah, so our organization is called Unbreed Living. You mm-hmm. can Find out more about what we do at com, And um, we basically come along, leaders, to help them rediscover the genius of Jesus' unhurried way of living and leading. A lot of times leaders are so frantically doing so many things that they, they believe God's called them to do, or that they want to do to honor God. And we think that if, if leaders can slow down just a bit, maybe walk at the pace of love instead of at the pace of... You know the frantic pace of our culture. Mm-hmm. That maybe they'll have a greater sense of how God is coming alongside them, how God has called them, how God is guiding them. And so we do a lot of work with leaders around the world in that spirit.
1: Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for being with us today. I so appreciate it. It's great thank to be you. With you. God bless. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments to wrap things up. You're listening
0: to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Christian ministries in Afghanistan have lost contact with numerous partners uh, here in the U.S. as the embattled country is entering what they're referring to as a new phase of the crisis, sparked, of course, by the Taliban takeover. That's a quote from the head of a U.S.-based ministry uh, here in the U.S. Christians in Afghanistan are facing this new phase of crisis by having lost contact with U.S. ministries that might facilitate Um, The help that they desperately need. William Stark, who is International Christian Concerns Regional Manager for South Asia, told the Christian Post that when the Taliban took control of much of Afghanistan following the drawing down of U.S. troops back in August, many ministries working with the country's underground church worked tirelessly to evacuate at-risk Christians. Now, as Christians trapped in the country face an uncertain future, or perhaps uncertain isn't the right word, many have gone silent, desperately seeking to avoid the probing eyes of the Taliban. Some have taken to the hills. Some are just simply trying to hide out in country. Christians are now in hiding because of active threats against their community. He shared stories of how Christians continue to face threats from members of the Taliban. In one situation, an Islamic extremist, threatened to kidnap a Christian man's daughter and marry them off, or daughters, plural, I should say, and marry them off to members of the Taliban, which isn't at all uncommon. In another, a Christian man received a letter from the Taliban saying his house belonged to them. Christians have also been warned to refrain from gathering. Well, even within the network that uh, that has been in place, a number of people have changed their phone numbers because it's simply not safe anymore. Uh, Their work to uh, lie low in the country makes it hard for someone on the outside to stay in contact. That contact, which has been a lifeline, now could be a death signal. Many estimate the Christian population in Afghanistan to be as many as 12,000, making it one of the country's largest religious minorities. Afghanistan is over 99% Muslim. And though all religious minorities in Afghanistan are at risk under Taliban rule, Christians are particularly vulnerable. In fact, Mr. Stark went on to say, because the vast majority of them have converted to Christianity from Islam, they are certainly targeted. Under Sharia law, leaving Islam is a crime punishable by death. You don't to choose to be Muslim, you are born into it. I mean, some might choose, but generally speaking, in Afghanistan, if you were born to a Muslim family, that is sufficient. We talk about Christians as a religious minority, but to the Taliban, they're seen as apostates, criminals and people that deserve to be punished. As prosecution, or rather persecution, continues to increase, Afghan Christians need help from the outside to escape their circumstances, he said. It's going to take a diplomatic process by the U.S., the U.K., and other countries that are going to allow them to leave that country. Essentially, what they need is some sort of special status that would allow them to travel outside of Afghanistan. Now, it's highly unlikely that the Taliban is going to grant that kind of special status that would, in fact, allow them to travel outside of Afghanistan. They are considered apostate, deserving of punishment and persecution. So it's not likely that's going to happen. Because they don't have passports and they uh, can't work with the government in order to issue them a passport, it makes it very challenging for them to be able to leave the country. That is, by using some um, some means of... Um, Mass transportation. Many Afghan Christians are rural. They're uneducated. They don't have a passport. Uh, so many of them are unable to acquire the documents needed to leave the country. ICC has been um, advocating for the US, the UK, and other governments to create a special status for Afghan Christians to give them a legal avenue to leave the country and seek refuge status elsewhere in the world. But, of course, in order for them to enjoy that status, they would have to um, uh, have permission granted to them by the Taliban. Again, not likely. Well, as some voices are calling on the government to limit the number of refugees entering from Afghanistan to the U.S., Mr. Stark called for nuance. He posited that only allowing Afghans who might be targeted of um, targets rather of Taliban violence due to their U.S. affiliations into the country leaves little room for Christians. Vulnerable populations like the Christian community often don't fall within that group of people that work with the military. If we draw a hard line and say only people that did that, uh, did that can be allowed to leave and come to the United States, we're essentially putting a line through those Christians being able to get out of the country and, and identifying them as well. We have to make sure we don't uh, we're not casting out vulnerable populations who are very deserving of resettlement. Well, ICC is not the only persecution watchdog to share reports of missing Christian contacts in the country in Afghanistan. Nehemiah from Forgotten Missionaries International recently shared with Missions Network Net, uh, News rather the story of a man named Abdar who disappeared after traveling to Afghanistan for evangelism purposes. He was with us for the last few months, Nehemiah said. He's from Afghanistan studying in Pakistan, and he said last month that he was going to Afghanistan for evangelism purposes. It's been more than a week since we've uh, been able to hear from him. We've lost contact. And that, of course, strikes fear in the heart of those who are trying to stay connected and help those who are suffering. Nehemiah said Christians in Afghanistan will be bracing themselves. Will they be forced to convert back to Islam? Will they be killed if they refuse? In late August, human rights group ADF International, they urged the international community to address the dire plight of religious minority communities in Afghanistan. As disturbing accounts of killings, harassment and intimidation against them are rapidly emerging, we urge states and the international community to give utmost attention to those persecuted minorities and guarantee the conditions for their prompt and safe exit from the country, irrespective of whether they have valid travel documents, ADF said. Well, again, given the, the current uh, circumstances, it's highly unlikely that uh, Christians or other religious minorities will be singled out for efforts to gain exit from the country. And as was mentioned here not long ago, there's uh, speculation that what happens in Afghanistan from this point forward could uh, mimic what happened in Iran following the the fall of the Shah. It was a very difficult and challenging period. And Under those circumstances, many became disillusioned with the religion of their birth. And Iran is now the country, if I'm not mistaken, with the highest number of believers uh, behind or at least next to China uh, in a country where practicing one's Christian faith is simply forbidden. So my prayer is, short of Christians escaping, as some are wont to do, uh, that those who remain either by choice or out of necessity, that they too would begin a movement like what um, was seen in Iran. It's its virtually uh, hard to believe what happened there and what is happening there as the church has grown exponentially. Might it be the future of Afghanistan? I don't say that with uh, with glee because I know the tremendous cost that would be required in order for that to be the case. And so I am committed, as I know many of you are as well, to praying for Afghanistan in general, but certainly for the church in Afghanistan as well. And as we've discussed here on several occasions, one of the prayers that pastors from Afghanistan have asked us to pray for them is that they would certainly be safe, that they would be able to survive this transition and the changes that have come and are coming But that they would be able to stand firm on the gospel, that they wouldn't waver in their faith, that the church would, in fact, grow uh, internally as well as numerically. And we can certainly play a role in that process by faithfully praying for the church in Afghanistan, recognizing that we are, according to Scripture, connected uh, to them. We are one body and we are called to pray for them as though we ourselves are in chains. So I am concerned. I'm uh, fearful for uh, believers, especially uh, children uh, of Christians and so on there, but I'm also encouraged and inspired to consider uh, what God might be doing. And I'm always convinced that under the worst of circumstances where believers, where the church exists, God is always do something, doing something rather behind the scenes that we may be unaware of. God is faithful and he will not abandon those who have called upon him and are in dire need at this very moment. Well, we are out of time. I do want to uh, thank uh, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for
0: listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook.